Welcome in the podcast. According to sources, I am you got SD2 Mics. You can follow me on Twitter, Instagram at that specific tag at SD2 Mics. And I'm Sean Davis. Of course, as always, joined by my bros in studio, Chris Kaysen at C4 Dunk. Instagram, Twitter. You can also follow him. A great new article. The fact that you write about hockey or deal with <laughs> hockey players, bro. You can go to my page, go to his page. You can see the article in GQ right now. It's a dope piece. On the other line, down by the Mason-Dixon line, probably being an agitator, it's the guy, Brian Crawford, Mr. Crawford4D, Instagram, getting it in. I just want to hop right into this. I'm going to give BC an opportunity to, like, apologize for something he said on the first podcast concerning Kawhi Leonard. Mm -hmm. But we'll wait later in the show for that. We really haven't had a chance to talk about the fallout. Now, Ingram... Looks like he's confronting Jason Phillips. Well, the technical foul was on Ingram for shoving James Harden after that play. I'm not sure why, what happened. Ingram was usually pretty mild mattered. It's hot now. Paul oh, punches a throw. Paul and Rondo throwing punches. Ingram comes in. He's throwing punches. Security trying to separate. So are some of the teammates. Boy, that quickly erupted into something ugly. We saw the fight, but the fallout from that and what we've seen, the impact on both teams. Mm -hmm. James Harden is injured right now. Uh, I believe they just got blown out at home last night by Portland. Dame Dollar, CJ put it on them. But moving forward, are both of these teams possibly going to be outside of the top four when we look at the Western Conference? Or do they play themselves into expectations and uh, what the prognosticator said early in the season? with both teams being top four or five teams? Uh, I mean, I think it's too early to kind of, I don't know, evaluate so soon. You know what I'm saying? Like, we just a couple weeks into the season. You know, it's going to take everybody a little while for them to get their legs up on them, you know, get in game shape, get into their rhythms and things like that. So I try not to look too much, you know what I'm saying, or, or pass too much judgment very early on in the season because, you know, it's – I mean, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. So, you know, teams can look terrible in, you know, mid to late October. And then by Thanksgiving going into Christmas, you know, they look fantastic. So, um, you know, I think it's, I think it's just kind of like you just have to be, you know, we've watched enough basketball now to understand that, you know, these things, that, you know, take time to come together. And, you know, early season predictions really don't mean much. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, the people who, you know, said that, you know, these teams will – be ranked wherever if they could potentially fall off. I don't think so. Um, I just think we just kind of need to be patient and just kind of let the season play out. Yeah, and I'm also one to not get, you know, too early. It's, it's definitely too early. I always judge a team, you know, right when they get to that 18 to 25 game mark, that gives you a good indication to see where guys are, you know, different schemes. And, you know, that gives basically the coaches a chance to, see what lineups work as far as, you know, when you when you sub a guy in, when you sub a guy out, you know, what lineup finishes the last six minutes of a game. So it's definitely too early. I mean, the one thing um, I guess you can look at is concerning is that both of these teams are in the West. And, you know, you just look at 
last season, I think three through nine, as far as like standings, they were only separated by I think like 2.5 games. So every game in the West counts. So when you look at the Lakers situation, there's little margin of error there because, you know, LeBron, you know, when you get to like game 75 or, you know, 70 to 75 in the East, you can start resting. You can start resting guys. In the West, that 75 through 81, sometimes, even last year going back, game yeah. 82 was important. So there is no rest at all this season. I mean, and then you look at they, the talent level on that team. These guys are still young. So you're still trying to implement, like, winning and winning habits, you know, from the last three three years, you know, most of the core of those guys. So it, it definitely still is too early. I think Houston – you know, we saw what they did last year. Their issues are, you know, I think internal as far as the defense is not going to be. Is it as it simple as losing guys like Luke? Yeah. And uh, yeah. Trevor? Yeah. I think, it's just that simple. Yeah, like, just because. Three and D guys. They they were, you were able to switch. You know, you had a three and a four that could switch. And now you look at that's gone now. And you throw a guy in there who gets buckets and is adapting still to a catch-and-shoot role. You know, so it takes away the element last year that made them so good defensively. I don't know, you know, what helped, you know, Jimmy Butler. You know, he's rumored to be, you know, traded there and they're trying to work stuff out. I don't know how much he Now, how that. much is desperation? That, we love Jimmy, mm-hmm. right? Four first-round picks is – According to sources, it was reported that Daryl Morey offered mm-hmm. the Minnesota Timberwolves for Jimmy Butler. According to rules, that has to be spread out over seven years. So we're talking about four first-round draft picks that will probably be in the teens yeah. somewhere, spread out over seven years. Minnesota didn't move on it. Is Daryl Morey showing that he's at the end of his rope for whatever plan he's had for the last three or four years to put this championship team around James Harden and chase down the Golden State Warriors? Is this that last-ditch effort like, you know what, I don't see anything else in sight. Let me go ahead and just try to make this move to cover up for what you like, what they lost when Bob Mute and uh, Trevor Ariza. Yeah, it looks like it's just a he's basically leveraging the future for the present, and we saw that with Brooklyn. You know, when they did. When they uh, did the deal with Boston. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. But those guys were on the last leg of their careers. Right. But you look at Jimmy, basically it's a one-year rental. So I think he's just it's an irrational move. I understand it just in terms of wanting to compete. You're trying to appease a fan base and you're trying to go all in for just this one year. You know, I don't think it's a smart move when you look at the injury history of Chris Paul. And then when you look at, I think we've alluded to this on the the first show, just James Harding and big games, right? Like not showing up. I don't think Jimmy like shrinks at all from the pressure. But you look at just the makeup of that team, like with the Warriors even like blink at that lineup <laughs> at all. I don't think so. So you know, I think so even with I mean, Jimmy, you feel like, and then you gotta, you know, you gotta ask yourself also, like, is Jimmy Butler the missing piece? Like, you know, right. is that the guy that gets you over the hump in the West when you got to get past, you know, when you got to get past the Warriors? You know, giving, that's giving up a lot, you know, and, and you basically mortgaging your future. Like you said, even on those draft picks are going to be in the teams, you know, some of them could be very valuable. Um, and you kind of just really and truly putting all your 
your eggs in the in the Jimmy Butler basket. And, you know, like you you know, like you just said, like I don't know if they even blink at that, if that even bothers them. Right. So I think there's a you know, I don't I don't really know what that's about. I mean, I love Jimmy. You know, I think he's a very valuable player, but I mean in that scenario, putting him in Houston, I can't necessarily say he is that, you know, that that X factor, that piece that they needed or that they need to try to get them past Golden State. I'm not really convinced of that. Something else you might think about that we've seen because of the suspensions. We got a five-game look at this particular question, and I'm going to just throw it out there. Is Kyle Kuzma better than Brandon Ingram? No. I don't think so. I think I think that, you know, I mean, it's hard to say better, you know, because, because they're two different types of players. Is he a better fit um, with LeBron? Is he a better fit for LeBron? Uh, I mean, I think LeBron can play with anybody. You know what I'm saying? So I don't I don't really think that's the issue neither. Uh, you know, as, as far as Kuz and um, Brandon Ingram, I, you know, Brandon Ingram is, is, is more of an offensive player. I think Kuz is more of a, uh, you know, more of a versatile player. He, he, he can do a lot of different things on the floor. He's an incredible rebounder. He can score a little bit. You know, he, but, you know, and he's getting better offensively. He's getting getting better defensively. I don't necessarily know if that – I don't know if, if one is better than the other. I think – you know, LeBron could play with both of them. You know, the question is, do they complement each other on the floor? Um, you know, that could be a little sticky and, and a little tricky, but I can't really say who's better. Yeah, I think Kuz is uh, just a better fit for LeBron. I see what they're trying to turn Ingram into. Like, I just don't think that, you know, it's going to work out. I think Ingram needs the ball in his hands. You know, he's not going to be one of those guys that, you know, is just satisfied with slashing and cutting and, you know, letting LeBron create for him, standing in a corner. I think Kuzma is more – his game is more so of that slashing type of game. You know, he has a little hook shot and he's always, you know, moving. Um, But like BC said, I think, you know, them complimenting each other on the floor is going to be the big, you know, the big thing for – this season and going forward, because if they can't all gel together, like they, the, these two aren't even, you know, closing games. Most I think the just the Lakers um, lineup. You have like a few guys that are playing like 20 minutes a night. KCP is still getting uh, a lot of minutes. So you know, I think you know it depends on what this season is. Also, like, are you really trying to? Are you really selling winning, or do you you need these guys to develop? So. It's like funny they should you be say here. that because yeah. you, you look at it and because you saw Kuzma come to life when he entered the starting lineup with LeBron. Mm-hmm. And he was like one of the first guys I've seen other than Kyrie, like get a rebound and wave Bron off. Yeah. I got it. And push it up court and make a play. So his confidence is like, okay, this dude knows he can play with Bron. He knows where he fits in. He's very confident. So now is this season about not so much winning, but is it about building up Ingram? to be a valuable asset, to move, make a deal, maybe not even this year, but in the offseason. You know you're going to have cap space for another big free agent. And then you possibly add somebody else by moving Ingram. I can see the big plan because they know AD is probably, based upon reports, AD is going to ask possibly for a trade. I mean, I don't even think you got to really move Brandon Ingram because, I mean, if you do that, then you kind of, you know, again. But is he really going to be happy coming off the bench? I mean, how long is LeBron going to be there? I mean, LeBron not going to be there forever. You know what I'm saying? And Brandon Ingram is only in his second year. So, you know, the Lakers got 
plenty of time to hold on to him, hold on to him for cheap, developable. It doesn't really make any sense to, you know, try to move him, especially, you know, when you say AD, Brandon Ingram's still on his rookie deal, so he's not going to be taking up that much money anyway. So I don't, you know, I definitely don't think the plan is to use him as an asset or as a trade chip or anything like that. I think they're going to keep him. I think they see him, you know, as obviously part of that young core and potentially even their future. I definitely don't see them trading Brandon Ingram. His decision, the decision on him is next next October, correct? Yeah, next next, next October. October yeah. Or whether extend uh, third year. Yeah, yeah. Because I, I look at that, he can be an asset because I still go back to, you know, you look at that that brain trust of Magic and uh, Cupcheck. No, not Cupcheck. Uh, Palenka. Palenka. Yeah. Yeah. You look at, you know, Luke wasn't brought in by them. Ingram is not, you know, a draft pick of theirs. Right. Like Kuzma. And, Ball are. And ball are, yeah. So if anybody, you know, out of that core was to go, it would be Ingram. I mean, you look at what they have. They're giving good look, lip service, though. Yeah. Oh, of course. They talk the talk. Like, he's that Magic, guy. We're trying to groom him. And Magic can sell anything. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, I mean, a lot of that is going to be determined this season. You hope Ingram pans out to be, you know, what his potential says he can be. But I don't see it. I just, you know, thought the KD comparisons was always unfair. I mean, you just have a long, lanky guy who likes to put the ball in the basket. One thing that I always felt his game, he should have kind of molded his game closer to is Giannis just because of the length, you know, being able to use that length and get into the hole. But, you know, he's definitely not as strong as Giannis is, obviously, because he's still early in his career. But a lot of that's just going to be determined this season. But those guys need to be on the floor, like, during winning time. Like, those guys can't be on the bench. And to point out, Kuzma played Three years, yeah. Did he play his full? He played three years yeah. in college, and then you have Brandon Ingram that left after one, one and year done. and was a baby. Yeah, he's still a baby, mm-hmm. you know, especially mentally. So he's like I said, he's that ninety pound Rottweiler that doesn't even realize that he's that big. Mm-hmm. You know, doesn't want to walk up the steps. Wants <laughs> you to carry him. It's like, dude, get up. You can do this. Right side, Clay takes a dribble. Now the three, got it. An NBA record for Clay Thompson: fourteen threes. Chicago calls time. And to a man, every player off the Warriors bench congratulates Clay Thompson, who has breaking Steph Curry's record. 112 points. 112.4 to be exact. What does that mean? Well, according to sources, teams in the NBA are scoring 112.4 points this year per game. Now, according to sources, I got Draymond Green said that the referees told him specifically in the preseason that defense is no longer an emphasis in the NBA and they're calling the game extra tight. Mm -hmm. We see even here in Chicago, Zach Levine is going to the free throw line more than he has ever in his career. This goes back to our first podcast when we were talking about the NBA becoming less about competition and more about entertainment. When you hear that from a player saying the referees told him that defense is no longer an emphasis, is the game headed in the good, right direction? I mean, I don't think so. You already know how I feel about that. I think it's, you know, I think it's trash because it's, it's basically basketball on one side of the floor. You know, you just want to see guys run up and down. You want to see them run, jump, dunk, shoot threes. Um, you know, for a ref to basically admit that, you know, just confirms essentially, you know, but I specifically, as I've been saying for the past few years, it's like it's it's almost making it unwatchable because everybody is doing the same thing. 
Um, you know, it's all about running up the score. You know, there's no, you know, there's no balance to it. You know, they obviously they want to attract the fans. They're selling the product. Um, but it's just, I don't know. It just, it just doesn't feel right. Like it doesn't, it doesn't feel like actual basketball. It's more like a video game. And, you know, but like I said, you know, like I said in the first show, it's, it's basically about entertainment. You know, it's not about competition anymore. It's about, you know, fans want to see high scores. Fans want to see guys, you know, you know, shoot the three, you know, fans won't want exciting basketball and Adam Silver is trying to give them, you know, give them what it is that they're asking for to the detriment of the game at large. I think, um, you know, Draymond is more or less a defensive type of player. So that's actually not good for him. You know, like you said, you know, with Zach Levine going to the line more aggressive, calling the game a little bit tighter. You know, Draymond is not an offensive player. You know, he's, he's the guy that kind of does everything. Um, you know, you could basically phase out a guy like that, you know, who is a defensive specialist who, you know, who does like to compete on that side of the ball. You basically tell him, you know, his job is less important than, say, like Steph Clay and KD or, you know, Dane Lillard or, you know, any of these other guys that like to shoot the ball. So, um, you know, I'm not necessarily surprised. I just think it's just, you know, it's just a confirmation of what we've seen over the past three or four years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it just takes away from just the competition aspect. I mean, there has to be some physicality, like at all. I'm not saying go back to, you know, 80s and 90s basketball, but there's almost, it's taking away the physicality and what strategy are we seeing out there? Not everybody has the personnel of a Golden State or a Houston Rockets. So, and we're being forced you know, to watch teams try to replicate that that don't have the personnel for that. So you're seeing just a lot of you're seeing a lot of high possessions, and you're just seeing you know teams just chucking shots up and you know layups. That's it. There's no fundamentals that you're seeing at all, and that just leads me to like wonder like if you're scouting now, if you're scouting players, like what are you evaluating? Now, like, are you just evaluating, like, just the shot mechanics or how athletic he is? Because there's no real need to have, like, any type of fundamentals anymore, like footwork or anything. You just pretty much you're turning the league into a running gun. Now, I just wonder how long does that last before something starts to shift? Because I don't think Golden State's reign is going to be too much longer. So, you know, then what happens after that? But, you know, Silver is just trying to make the game appeal to the masses. And it's done doing a good job of that. The scores are, but if you go to an NBA game now, like, you know, are you what are you seeing out there that you know, I'll just go back to me personally, like if I go to an NBA game, there's certain things that you're looking for. Like if you're just watching teams run up and down the floor and shoot and def- defense is secondary, you're basically watching an all star game. And we all seen like what all-star games have turned into. You don't want, you know, your overall product to turn into that at all. Man, my father should learn how to turn on my own <laughs> mic in my own studio. But no, I think, and I want to point this out. One of the beautiful things, and I'm sure this is the same in New York, Los Angeles, any other municipality that's at the core of basketball, the history of basketball, yeah. but specifically Chicago, playing in the Red South in high school, there was a noticeable difference when we played other teams, whether it was Blue South teams, Red South teams, 
And then we had to hop on that bus and go play a Red West team, especially the guards. Like, we knew in the Red South we could walk the ball up, get it to our big guys, run our plays. Once we took that bus over to the West Side and played a team from the Red West, it didn't matter if we were better. We knew we were getting full-court pressure. Mm-hmm. Like, that was the way they played basketball on the West Side of Chicago. Like, if you just went to the park, it was going to be totally different than when you went to Ada Park on the South Side. Territorial basketball is what's being eliminated. Yeah. Like, everything is looking the same. Everything. There are no different styles. They say styles make fights. You don't have matchups anymore. We were talking before the podcast started, like, the matchup where I felt comfortable when the Bulls played because I always knew whoever your best player was, Scotty was going to be on them. And the only team that had a different style that kind of made you say, man, I don't know, was that Charles Barkley Phoenix Suns team because you couldn't put Scotty on Chuck. So now he's on Richard Dumas, and Richard Dumas is that guy that's just doing, just as athletic, doing all the small things, and you're just saying to yourself, I don't know how this is going to play out. And, of course, it takes an unhuman-like effort from Michael Jordan in Game 6 and a big shot from John Paxson to win that series because Horace Grant was almost petrified mm-hmm. of Charles Barkley in that series. So for me, when I look at the game and I look at the elimination of physicality, they're trying to make everything relatable for those that don't play. You understand know what yeah. I'm saying? It's like we, we get the game. So regardless if we watch a game, Marshall and Whitney Young, we watch that game, and it's a different style, and then we go over to Simeon's gym and we watch Morgan Park and Simeon, and they're going up and down, up and down with great guard play and great offense. We still love the games because we can appreciate it. Yeah. The game is being created so it can be marketed to people that don't have that relatability. And that's cool because that's the business. I get it. When you do that, you kind of lose the luster of the competition. And I think that goes back to what BC has been saying. When you lose competition and you start to create that at the lower levels, and now you're starting to create in the pipeline players that really don't want to compete, all they want to do is just shoot, not defend. What are we watching every night? We're paying $300 to watch, you know, games of 21. (laughs) Is that what we're doing? We're just basically watching 21. Nobody's defending. Go ahead, shoot your shot. Man, you know me, man. I, you know, I am definitely not a fan of uh, pandering to the lowest common denominator, so to speak. Like, why should the league basically try to, you know, cater to people who don't know anything about basketball? And, and I mean, you know, not even necessarily know anything, or you know, people who have never played and don't understand the level of competition. Like, why cater to them? in terms of giving them a product that's more relatable to them, why not keep the product the same and, and make them catch up? You know what I'm saying? Make them understand what's going on because what you're doing, you know, and I think I said this on the last one, you know, the last show is like, you know, I don't think, I think we have probably a dumber fan now than we've had, you know, when all three of us are kind of going up with the game. Um, we understood it, not necessarily because we played it, but also, like, like we got the competition of it. Like, you can see it. And I think, you know, when you start to cater to, 
you know, the fantasy basketball fans or, you know, the casual basketball fans or, you know, the guy who, you know, maybe is just a LeBron fan and only cares about LeBron and doesn't really, you know, care about the game or the league in general. I think when you start catering to those people, the casual people, well, that's when you start to create trouble. And I think, you know, that's kind of what the league is now in terms of, you know, they basically want to encourage the teams to run up the score. And so you pander into people, you know, these are the people that are paying, either paying $300, you know, a ticket, or, you know, the gambling super heavy on the games. Um, you know, I just, I just think it just, it, just, it just really diminishes the product. And I keep saying unwatchable because that's kind of what it is for me. Like, you know, I keep up with it, but I'm not, I'm not nearly as big a fan of our work <clears throat> as I was because of that. You know, I don't, I don't want to see, you know, 125-point scores every single night. You know, I don't want to see both teams, you know, score over 110 every single night. Like, I want to see some type of, you know, defensive intensity. And the only way you don't get those high scores is if, you know, you got a team that really plays in the half court and plays slow. But it's not even that many teams like that, you know, out there anymore. Like, you know, like Chris said, like, it's everybody's trying to duplicate what Golden State has done. And I think that's very dangerous because that team has a shelf life and eventually it's going to get broken up. And then what are you going to do? Like, who's going to set the standard then? Like, the Golden State Warriors only had a run probably about maybe four or five years. And then after that's over, now what do we have? You know, what's the new style? What's the new strategy then? So, you know, you can't go to state. I, you know, I remember people should say Michael Jordan was bad for basketball. And then, you know, they came and they said that, you know, LeBron was bad for basketball. But I think probably Golden State is probably the worst thing that I've seen in the last 20 years for basketball because it has created this this mindset that basketball should just be running up and down the court and shooting threes, and that's just not what it is. So Golden State as a whole, or are you talking about pre-KD? I mean, post-KD? No, I mean Golden State as a whole. Oh, no, okay. No, Golden All State right. as a whole. You know, I mean, you know, even going back to before they even got KD, you know, what was they doing? Like, I, you know, Clay was shooting threes, Steph was shooting threes, Draymond was shooting threes, they was playing real up-tempo, fast pace. Um, and, you know, the whole it's a copycat league thing, and I always hate that because you're not going to ever have the same personnel, personnel as Golden State. You're not going to have another Steph Curry. You're not going to have another Draymond Green. You're not going to have another Durant or Klay Thompson. So why are you trying to imitate that? This goes you know, back and, to, and, man, just be comfortable with getting a style that you can make your style exactly. and become the best at that style. Yeah. That's that's what I miss in the NBA. Everybody can't play the same way. No, I mean, in the one thing that is never mentioned with Golden State. I mean, we see the performances, but not it's not like discussed enough. Just the movement without the ball from all of those guys. Just the little things to free up certain guys. Of course, we see Steph when he gets hot. You can't do nothing about a guy Absolutely pulling up nothing. from thirty-three feet right. and beyond. But just the little things they do in the half court to set guys up and open the floor up for each other. Like it's you can't replicate that because nobody has they easily have three of the top five shooters in the league in their lineup. And they're about to add, you know, arguably the best big in the NBA to that lineup at, you know, in the next few, I would say the next couple of months. Right. You know, you can't replicate that, you know. So, I, like you said, I just wish that we can see different teams with different philosophies and, you know, try to impose your will on the team that way. Don't try to beat a team at their own game because if they created this, you know they're they're the bearers. You can't you can't oversee that at all. So and that's what we're saying. Yeah, you can't you can't out Golden State Golden State. You know what I'm saying? You can't 
you can't outshoot Steph Curry. You can't, you know, you can't. When they get DeMarcus Cousins back, like, you can't have a player or you don't have a player who can do what he does. And and so that's why, you know, going back to me saying that fans are dumber because everybody is always going to look at the top team, right? So for us, it was the Bulls. And, you know, everybody was – it was a copycat league then. Everybody was trying to, you know, do what the Bulls were doing. But, but not everybody had a Michael Jordan. And so, you know, when you got fans thinking that the Golden State Warriors are pretty much the bar and they are essentially the epitome of how basketball should be played, well, I mean, if you're a fan and you believe that, then you're just not very educated on basketball because there's more than one way to play a game. I'll give you, like, a perfect example. Um, you know, obviously we've seen – the rise in the three-point shot. And the only reason why they came about was become, you know, was because of analytics. And what suffered? The mid-range game. Like, you had a whole entire narrative saying the mid-range was a terrible shot. Like, what? That's ridiculous. Because, you know, yes, three is better than two, but guess what? That mid-range is, you know, it's a closer shot. Um, you know, it's a lot easier to make. And it's just part of the game. Like, you know, you aren't, you know, you shouldn't be limited or you shouldn't think basketball should just be limited to threes and layups. You got 94 by 50 feet to play on. So why would you just kind of limit it to those two things? And so, you know, I think that is where everything went wrong in terms of, you know, the Golden State Warriors and the way that they play. And they basically set this standard and had people thinking that that's how the game should be played. And it's not. That's just one way that it should be played. It's not the only way. Like, I, you know, I go, you know, I take my son. My son is 13 years old, you know. He's old enough to, you know, run with me now. And some of the stuff that I see him doing, I'm trying to, you know, I'm already trying to stem away from it and, you know, and try to tell him, like, yo, like, that's not, you know, that's not right. Like, you should think about doing this or, you know, watch this or, you know, kind of take this into consideration. It's not all about just coming down and hitting somebody with, like, 50 crossovers and, hitting them with a step back from 30 feet. Like, that's just, you know, yeah. it's just, it's bad. And, you know, and that that's the kind of coaching that's being done. That's the kind of stuff that's being taught. And what is the game turning into? Basically a track meet. Mike used to hit that little 15-foot pull-up. He used to curl around longly right at the free throw line in the triangle, hit that shot, hit his free throws, that alone, without even thinking about hitting a three. Yeah, I mean, If man. he was wide open for a three, He'll take it. He'll take it. But even the times he put the ball on the floor, there was very little wasted dribbles or movement yeah. at all. Everything was precise and calculated. He was looking to get to his spots. I mean, we don't – And that was the beautiful thing about what Klay Thompson did. Yeah. I think he had the ball in his hand a total of like 92 seconds. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. I think he only dribbled, I think, either nine or 13 times. But And dropped 50, yeah. 54. Yeah. That's, that's a byproduct of – Horrible, horrendous, <laughs> atrocious defense. I mean, just not being – like, you wonder what they watched film of the day before. You know the strength of this team. So, why are you going under screens? Why are you not, you know, pressing? But, you know, they might have been starstruck. You know, who knows? I mean. Yeah, 54 Man, 52 what, that game. What have I been saying yeah, for five 52, years? Right. Fred Hoiberg is a terrible coach. Yeah. Man, and you know what did they have at halftime of that game? 92. 90, 94 points. Ninety-two. Ninety-two. They could have. Had, they could have had one hundred six. The last three minutes of that, they were searching Clay out because it was clear what the motive was. Right. Let's get him this record. I yeah. mean, it's like, how do you, you know, as a head coach, 
like I've seen people get fired for less. You know what I'm saying? Like you, you basically allow a team to put up a hundred points on you and a half, and you still got your job. Like nobody can ever tell me, nobody can ever tell me anything after that. After that game right there, nobody can ever tell me anything about Fred Hoiberg as a coach. I don't want to hear. Like you know, and I got called a hater for many years just because of it. I'll just give him time. You know, just be patient. I'd seen enough in that first season to know what kind of coach he was and, you know, and how good he was. It wasn't. So there was nothing else you could tell me. And, you know, I think that performance the other night sealed it for me. He's an awful coach. And, you know, if that was anybody else, they probably would have gotten fired. Jimmy said it. I think we can see that Jabari is disgusted with him. Rondo was probably disgusted with him. I think the verdict's out, man. I think he finishes this season. You still think he finishes? Yeah, I mean, because, like I said, the next coach you bring in, there's expectations now. You know, you still have the same roster. The the same issues that we're seeing defensively, those aren't going to go away. Right. You know, but, you know, it might, you know, with the players and the voice, you know, is the, the, what is the message, you know, that they're selling? What is the culture that's being established? That's been my big question. Like, what culture has been established, you know, since Hoiberg has been here? What, does the organization deem as culture? Because Man, these last the Bulls two years can never KBA. say. The Bulls can never say that Fred Hoiberg was hired and brought in to win. They can never say that. You know, I don't. You know, like that's impossible to even utter or even you know try to sell fans on that. He was never brought in here to win. And I think you know I'm I'm more confident saying that now than ever. Like I think he was brought in here to lose. I think he was brought to the Bulls to kind of, you know, maybe do, you know, do the Philly thing without making it so obvious. You know what I'm saying? Where, you know, you just be bad, you collect these draft picks, um, you know, you try to draft, you know, hit a home run in the draft and, you know, see what you got. Um, But even at that, you know, just looking at the, you know, at his last draft, I didn't think they drafted very well. Um, So, I mean, as a franchise, I think the Bulls are a mess. You know, like you said, Chris, like what culture do you have? Like, like what is it that you're trying to do here? Because if it's not win, then, you know, what is it? Like, like I don't even know what it is anymore. And, you know, and like you said, even if Fred, I don't think they're going to fire him because they're not going to pay another coach to go away. Mm-hmm. Even, you know, he basically, I think at this point, is a lame duck coach. But the next guy who comes in, you know, what is his expectation? Like, what are you coming in here to do? So, I mean, I have no idea, like, what direction the Bulls are going in. But, you know, after the way they got dragged the other night, man, I would probably say they, man, they set themselves back just with this hire of Fred Horberg alone, like six or seven years. Speaking of that game against uh, Golden State, one of the cool moments, I think, was when they showed Joe in the suite on the Jumbotron. Yeah. And he received that standing ovation. Mm-hmm. My thought immediately that came to my mind, as a fan base, we're still stuck. We still feel like injuries cheated us. The organization didn't do us right with some of the decisions they made. Mm-hmm. What is it going to take to be able to move on? Because watching that, watching the way he was received in the midst of what was going on on the floor, will the Tibbs era Bulls and the Derrick Rose Bulls be the 85 Bears? for this fan base 10, 15 years down the line? Like, will we still man. be saying, like, man, when Derrick Rose and, T- and Tibbs and Joe were here, exactly. 30 for 30. Like, what is it going man, to take that, to bring closure for this fan base? That, and then move on. That, that group 
I will say, for me personally, is probably one of my favorite Bulls teams ever, including the Jordan, yeah. including the Jordan yeah, era. Yeah, including the Jordan era. You know, I I really had an affinity for those guys because I know for a fact how bad they wanted to win, and that team, the way it was put together, it was beautifully constructed. That was, you can't build a team better than that. And, you know, at that particular time in the East, and yeah, you know, injuries robbed us, but the boys still competed. You know, they still played hard. They still went out there and gave it everything that they had. They were, you know, they were, they were coached well. You know, they were very disciplined in what they did. But more importantly, they put defense first. Like, they understood that. They understood, like, the, you know, Defense is going to get us to where we got to go. And, you know, just from that you know, dynamic in the locker room, they all liked each other. You know, those boys, like, it wasn't, you know, that wasn't a team that had a whole lot of drama until the very end. But, you know, that started from the top down. But, you know, for me personally, you know, like you said, Chris, that might be a great 30 for 30 because that was a very lovable group of guys. Like, that was an easy group of guys to get behind. And, um, you know, it just it just sucks that they never really got to, you know, realize that full potential. But for me personally, man, like in the last, you know, like I said, I, I put that group up there with one of my, you know, with one of my favorites all the time next to, you know, next to the Jordan group. But just like in this modern era of basketball, that was probably that's probably been my favorite team, at least in the past 15 years. Yeah, I mean, you just look at how it came together. I mean, you know, you bring you hire Tibbs. Derek makes the proclamation uh, at media day. Why can't I be MVP? Which is crazy. Yeah, which is crazy yeah. at the time. And man, you just look at how everything came together. You brought the bench mob here. Everything came together. The only thing that stopped them, I think, was having that secondary guy that could say, "All right, Derek, I got, I got this. You got the last three minutes." Right. We didn't have that guy. I think Keith Bogus was the starting shooting guard, and you also had Ronnie Brewer. So that was very little. It was just Derek and, you know, heart, hustle right. of that team. And like BC said, it was so easy to get behind them because they were the anti-Miami Heat at the time. You had LeBron, Wade, Bosch there. You know, everything there was like Hollywood. And here, you know, Chicago is blue collar. Yeah, You had Derek Rose, Chicago born. Like You just had great, a great story. You had a team that was literally going to play hard all 48 minutes, you know, because of Tibbs. Nobody coached as hard as Tibbs, and nobody demanded more, you know, than Tibbs. So I think that team is always going to be revered, and it's always, you know, we're always going to look back and think, man, what if, you know, Derek doesn't get hurt, you know, that lockout short year. Could they have knocked off Miami? You know, it's just going to be interesting. I think what it takes for – I don't think you ever really get, as a fan, I don't think you ever really get past feeling that you've been robbed of something. I mean, you look at just how the Jordan era ended where basically it just fell apart, like, quickly. It wasn't like any – you kind of saw the writing on the wall, but it ended, like, abruptly. Right. Right after a title, you know, you really don't see that too many times. You know, it kind of, like, starts to just die slowly. You know, that one's just abrupt. But this one was just – taken away from, you know, Chicago and a different set of circumstances. I think what it takes for people to, like, not look back at that with such longing memories and uh, still, like, having, like, the heartache of that is 
talent, first of all, and you have to have a team. You have to be sold a vision, and you have to be able to see that vision. Like right now, I don't think Chicago sports fans know what they're being sold at all. Like at least with, you know, the process in Philadelphia, we knew what was going on. Right. Here we're being sold something. And, you know, they're trying to just deflect expectations, but it's like, you know, what do we have to get behind at all? So, you know, until, you know, we actually have, you know, a superstar here, you know, somebody that can get fans out the cold in December through March to go to United Center, I don't think, you know, I don't think you you have nothing really to get behind just yet. All you have is promises. Yeah. And if it is an ESPN 30 for 30, the clip of BC telling Joe that after a 75-degree day that it's snowing, <laughs> that has to make it. That clip is epic. And Joe was like, what? Like, that yeah, sucks. man, it's snowing outside. <laughs> man, I just, I just, I actually just watched that clip the other day. I don't even know how, like, I got to it. It popped up or something like that. But, man, I, you know what? I didn't even realize, like, that that clip was actually like that. I think maybe somebody shared it or something, but yeah, man, that was, that was, but that's what I'm saying. Like that, that was that team, like those guys, like, and Chris, you can attest to this, man. You know, even when them cameras and the mics was off, man, we used to sit around and chop it up with them dudes. Yeah. Like just talk about just, you know, regular stuff, basketball stuff, you know, things that didn't have nothing to do with basketball. It was always approachable. And, you know, if they liked you, you know, and they rock with you, then, you know, they let you know it and you felt that. And but you know, like I said, wrapped up in all of that, man. At the end of the day, them boys want to win. And you know, like you said, Chris, now like we're being sold this dream. You know that you know they say things with their mouth, and then you know they put something on the court, and you're like, well, this doesn't add up with what it is that you told us. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think I think the the thing that hurts the Bulls to this point is like you know. With that Jordan era, like you said, you know, that ended abruptly. Like, right after the championship, cut it off. And I think, you know, that's probably good or better than trying to sell people the dream. And But, you know, I think that was the last time they ever really made any drastic moves like that. You know, now it's like they hold on to guys too long. You know, they basically kept the front office the same the last however many years, 15 years. It's like there is no, you know, there is no forward thinking in that organization anymore. I think, the, you know, they, they basically hit their peak with this last group. And, you know, because the game is changing so much and, you know, it's going in so many different directions, I don't necessarily know if they've really even adapted to it in terms of adapt in terms of formulating a plan. You know, everything to me, it looks like they're just kind of just winging it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And like hoping, hoping they get lucky again. I get lucked up on Derek, they lucked up on, you know, Joe being as good as he was. You know, they lucked up on Jimmy. Um, you know, they it was dumb luck into a lot of situations. Now it's like when you actually see them have to work, well, now it's like, you know, now there's a lot of questions. You know, there's more questions than answers. So, you know, this franchise is my childhood love. It's like disappointing me in my adulthood just because I don't think the commitment to winning is there anymore. Yeah, I mean, and I think another thing is just having too many rebuilding cycles that close together. You know, that, that doesn't make anything better at all. You look at how long it took. We saw two yeah. before Derek. Yeah, And exactly. Derek just happened to interrupt one. Exactly. Yeah, now you look what, that Tibbs 
Derrick Rose layup run, that was five five seasons. Yeah. And that goes by quick, you know, and now we're in the process of what looks to be another seven, five to seven right. year before you start to see, you know, returns on, you know, investments. You know, so I don't know. I don't know how I think Chicago fans are probably the most loyal in terms of just their allegiance to franchises, but with this new generation of fan, I just wonder, like, at what point, you know, do they, you know, it's it's already starting to show a little bit when you look at the United Center, you go to games and, you know, depending on who they're playing, you're going to see a lot of red seats. You know, no matter what the attendance numbers are, they still were able to get a lot of people to renew their season packages just for, like, upgrading them. But, I mean, at some point, like, they're going to start to feel that hurt because I don't think fans are as patient anymore especially this new this new fan this new fan yeah this new nba fan. yeah like, definitely i don't think impatient. so i think some of the older the diehard fans they're not coming to games really anymore they're i'll i'll catch this on you know nbc cast or whatever i'm not paying you know 100 plus to come down there and watch that product at all so i just wanted to like when does the sense of urgency kick in like what's the what's the breaking point and the breaking point is going to be when people stop filling them seats. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, that's going to be it. You know, when, well, once according they to, according to the sources, bunch of, you know, last, last season scared the front office, which is why they made some of the moves this offseason. The lack of suites being lit up over there during games, like, it really scared the front office. And I think that's why they made some of the passive-aggressive moves, like going out getting Jabari and trying to sell us on the roster possibly looking like a 7-8 seed, but at the same time, the front office is sitting there in front of the mic telling you, no, we're still in the second year of a rebuild. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think I think the problem with Bulls fans in general is, that, you know, these our fans are really the ones who really think or who really and truly think that they should try to build a team like Golden State. And so when you have, you know, when you have that type of mindset with the fans, um, that's going to cause a lot of empty seats because they're not going to appreciate, you know, different types of players with different types of skill sets. You know, they're not going to appreciate guys who don't come down every time and just shoot the ball from 30 feet. And if that's what you want to see, and I think that's what Bulls fans want to see, um, if you don't give them that, then, you know, there's no, there's no motivation for them to show up. Um, you know, they would have to see something different win in order for it, you know, in order for them to get behind it. And so I think, you know, if I, you know, if I had to guess, I think, I think the Bulls are kind of trying to figure out what that is. But now, you know, like you said, we're in another rebuild. Um, we're about to have another coach, which is going to bring in a whole different philosophy, a whole different system. And, you know, again, that's, you start to scratch all over again. So it's like for the past three, three or four years, the Bulls have been starting to scratch every single season. And the fans are getting tired of that. Well, I'll wrap it up by just saying this. Bulls fans, make yourself feel better. You don't have to watch the Bulls game. Just go watch these five players. R.J. Barrett, Zion Williamson, Cam Reddish, <laughs> and I see a little, and Romeo Langford. That's Duke, North Carolina, and Indiana. Go watch some ACC and Big Ten basketball. Maybe you'll get one of those guys, and they can change the fortunes. You're listening to According to Sources with BCSD and C4. 
right here on A2S Network. Trust me not to talk about the situation. You know, my, it is what it is. You guys see I have three games and I look forward to getting back. Everyone knows who I am, um, you know, my team, and I think they still respect me for what I do and what I bring to this team. According to sources, and this had me dying. I'm sure BC loved hearing this about his one of his favorite players. In the aftermath of all the suspensions and everything, we've seen Rajon Rondo stick up for himself here in a Bulls uniform, and he did it once again. He stood up and he said, of course, the NBA went with his side, speaking of Chris Paul, because he got three, I got three games and he only got two. Everyone wants to believe Chris Paul is a good guy. They don't know he's a horrible teammate. They don't know how he treats people. You guys riding with that, man? I took a step back, and I felt like Rajon Rondo was attacking the character of one Chris Paul. When I see athletes, they could be jerks on the field. They might be doing that trying to get an upper hand, play mind games. But I don't know who they are as a family. I don't know who they are with their kids. I don't know who they are with their wives, their significant others, how they entreat their mom the rest of the immediate family. So I'm really slow to, like, attack the character of somebody. But in the sense of teammates, how fair were the comments of one Rajon Rondo when he says Chris Paul is just flat out a terrible teammate? Uh, Rajon Rondo ain't said nothing that I ain't never heard before. I say that. You know what I'm saying? Like, Chris Paul is really popular with fans. He's not a very popular player around the league. <laughs> Um, I don't know if you guys remember when uh, Kenny Martin went on, I think it was Colin Cowherd's show, and he was saying that, you know, obviously Chris Paul is the uh, president of the Players Union. What are you saying? You know, Chris Paul has a reputation of being more of a politician than an actual teammate, and people don't trust politicians. You know, he, you know, he basically said that Chris Paul kind of has his own agenda when it comes to certain things. Um, you know, obviously we had the incident with them trying to get into the locker room. I forgot who it was that they played, but he kind of led that they Playing charge. the Clippers. They were playing the Clippers Yeah, playing the year. Clippers. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, you also got him with the dirty plays and this, that, and the other. So, and then, you know, you, you even bring that into the, you know, the little banana boat factor. You know what I'm saying? Where it's just really, it's just Chris Paul, LeBron James, Melo, and D-Wade, and that's kind of like their circle. Um, you know, I think D-Wade is probably, and Melo are probably more like a, or liked around the league. Um, but guys just don't rock with Chris Paul, man. Like, I look, I'm going to tell you, Rondo two-piece that man, I was happy. I was glad somebody finally put their hands on him because, like, he had it coming. You know what I'm saying? It's been a long time coming. I think I think Chris Paul is, is a fantastic, fabulous basketball player. But... As a person, I think he leaves a lot to be desired. And, you know, I've heard, you know, a lot of things about him from different guys around the league. And they all kind of run along the same vein as um, Chris Paul. But Chris Paul is loved by the media. He's definitely loved by the fans. He's loved by those guys who, you know, are into analytics and advanced stats and stuff like that. And so they tend to take the basketball stuff and try to make that who he is as a person. And that's just totally different. And I think, you know, Rondo basically kind of spoke out loud, uh, you know, a lot of the things that's been whispered behind the scenes. Yeah, and I think it also goes to, you know, a player who feels he's just as good, you know, has a title, and, 
you know, all the stories we hear about Rondo is how difficult he can be. You know, there's always a but with him. Great basketball mind, but, you know, can be difficult. Even this one season here, I remember a conversation I had with him. Like, it, just uh, perceptions like that can affect the way you even approach a guy, like from mm. a media standpoint. Right. You know, so I approached him a certain way and, you know, kind of having a guard up. And he's like, no, nah, man, it's cool. It's not like that. And I have to talk to him. I was like, man, you know, I've heard all these things. He's like, a lot of it, you know, it's just perception. So his comments to, I think, those ESPN, yeah. that just kind of to me, it just seems like this is a guy who has basically had his name dragged through the mud. I mean, just in particularly the last, what, four or five years, basically. And you're going up against a guy who – you know, every, has all these commercials and all these things. And, you know, he's just like, man, well, this is the real yeah. on this dude. Like, you know, that, that's, that's what it seems like to me as a guy frustrated about how he's perceived as opposed to, you know, how Chris Paul is perceived. I mean, you know, and, you know, Chris Paul, you got the nickname, Point God. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, all of these, you know, you got all of these things that kind of get generated in the media, but you know, and a lot about, you know, a lot from these new media, and you know, who are followed by these new fans, and so they kind of latch on to these things. And you know, Rondo, like you said, Rondo has a reputation that kind of precedes him of being a jerk and all that. But you know what? Some of the best basketball players ever have been jerks. You know what I'm saying? Like bottom line, Rondo, Rondo is a winner. He's won, you know what I'm saying? He's And he hasn't, you know, and his winning didn't necessarily come easy because, you know, when you're a young guy and, you know, he's almost ran out the league, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So you're a young guy, you playing with Paul Pierce, you being coached by Doc Rivers, you got Ray Allen, you got Kevin Garnett. That's a, man, that's a, that's a tall order to be able to kind of slide in, slide in with that particular group and make yourself stand out in a way that is totally different from everybody else on your team. You know, why do we notice Rondo? We notice Rondo because of the way he set people up in terms of getting assists. We notice Rondo for the way that he rebounded the ball. We notice him for the way that he played defense and got steals, like all of those things, like the little things that people don't even value in basketball anymore. That's what makes Rondo so good because he is he is literally like, the, the antithesis of what people think the game should be. And he's still successful. Like, you remember, like, a couple of years ago, you know, everybody was saying, oh, you know, Rondo is not a fit for the modern game. And here he is four years later. He's still rocking out in the league, and he's still putting up, you know, putting up decent numbers. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if he don't get, you know, if he doesn't break his thumb, shoot, the Bulls probably win that first-round playoff, you know, series because of him. And so, you know, Rondo is really and truly one of my favorites basketball players and he's also one of my favorite people because he is a competitor he is a dog and that's the kind of thing that i like to see according to sources we want to get to the indictments that were handed down the impact of one lavar ball but rich paul he was on the jump and he talked about his relationship with a young man named darius baby Darius is a very, very different kid. Okay. And, you know, his mom and him came to me and they they wanted advice. Mm -hmm. And in doing so, um, the main thing for me was just trying to find out the best way for Darius to spend his time since he was not going to college. And New Balance 
is a very fearless, independent brand, and what they represent align directly with who Darius Baisley is and, and what he wanted to do. And so those but two things. They're paying him a million just, dollars. That's they're a lot paying of money. a million dollars no matter what, which is which is which is great. <laughs> very you know um, creative on on. But we how it came about was. New Balance is reintroducing themselves back into the basketball mm -hmm. business. And Darius aligned with who they are as a company. And they wanted to be able to tell his story and to tell it the right way. What For me, I don't have a platform for NBA scouts to reach out and call and say, well, what's his character like? What's, right. you know, how's he But if he class? doesn't go to college, they if can't do that. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I presented to them, I said, hey, let's do this deal, but, but, while doing this deal, let's implement this into the deal. And so he's going to be an intern. He starts in January. It's for, for three months. He'll live in Boston. He'll work out and train there. And he's able to learn a business that actually aligns with what he likes. You know, he'll learn um, what goes into making a shoe, what goes into building a storyboard, what, why they pick the certain athlete that they pick. You know, um, and and so rollout plan, how to execute it, all those things. Which, for who he is, if he, regardless of what happens in his life, he has a head start. He'll know more about the business around the game than anybody in his class. So that was Rich Paul right there. Rich Paul, of course, NBA agent, co-owner and co-founder of Clutch Sports. Formed a relationship. Was approached by Darius Baisley and his family. He de decommitted from Syracuse, I believe, in March. Didn't want to play college basketball and was trying to find out his options. And as you heard there, these kids are looking for more options other than the one-and-done rule and possibly just being able to go to Europe and make money. And what he was able to create was an opportunity for a three-month in in, uh, internship with New Balance where Darius Baisley will be paid $1 million. And as you heard there in the clip, He'll learn the inner workings of the business with basketball, advertisement, marketing, mm -hmm. shoe deals, things of that nature. And he'll know that going into his year, but he'll also be eligible for the 2019 NBA draft. He'll be working out in Boston where the internship is. But he won't have that much of a run like five-on-five five in right. competition that he'll be getting in college. First of all, do you think this is a good idea for this young man? Is it a good option moving forward, or is it that's just specifically good for him as an individual? And you won't see too many other people following in his footsteps. And will other shoe companies step up and start allocating money to positions like this for future prospects? Um, I think this is a very unique situation. Like, I've never seen anybody turn down playing basketball to go get a job and then come back to playing basketball. But, you know, if that if that internship, and can you really call it an internship if you're getting a million dollars? You know what I'm saying? So <laughs> in that respect, I mean, that's a great – I mean, who can say no to that? You mean tell me, like, I don't have to go to school and I still get to pocket a million dollars, still get to work out? And I'm sure it has, um, has to be an under-the-table has to be an under-the-table deal yeah, I think for a shoe league, deal yeah, once he gets in the league. league. has to be. Because New Balance, is, New Balance is definitely trying to get back. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. But, I mean, you know, in terms of the competition aspect, yeah, he's probably going to miss that. Um, you know, but being in Boston, it's a lot of, you know, it's a lot of schools around there. You know, it's a lot of coaches around there. You know, he can get some run, you know, with some college kids. Um, and, you know, he can basically 
work out. Um, I think that, you know, that year off in competition is probably going to make it maybe make a little difference in terms of just maybe rust and, you know, and not having to perform at elite level every night. But, you know, it's basically, you know, in, in, in terms of the future or sitting out this year, it's, it's, to me, it's no different than, uh, you know, Emmanuel Moutier going to China or uh, was it Terrence Ferguson and went to Australia. Um, yeah. You know, they were playing basketball, but you didn't see those guys. You know what I'm saying? Like, you didn't know what they was doing, and, you know, nobody was checking for them. Nobody was keeping up with them. And, you know, this kid doing his internship in New Balance is making more than what they got paid over there. So, you know, I'm one of those people that thinks that these kids should have an option. Um, I'm also one of these people who would like to see the NCAA go out of business or at least get hurt financially in terms of losing some of these kids to, you know, other basketball-related avenues so they're not exploited. Um, this is very unique, man. Like, I'd never heard anything like this. But, you know, once again, if the option is there, and I think, you know, maybe I don't know if other shoe companies would duplicate it um, because you kind of have to, like you said, this is probably an under-table thing. So when he does get to the league, he'll be rocking out with New Balance. Um I don't think Nike could ever do anything like this. I don't think Adidas could ever, you know, ever do anything like this. This might only work for maybe New Balance, possibly Puma, you know, maybe Adidas or something like that. Um, but it's, you know, it's a it's a very interesting move, and you know, he'll always have something to be able to build upon. And you know, once he gets out of, or you know, once his playing days are over, he'll still be able to make some money in basketball. So I think it's a good thing. Yeah, I think it's great to give kids options because, I mean, these kids are basically being raised to, you know, there's a lot of depending on them, you know, just from a family standpoint. So they're not thinking about school at all. And, you know, give or take it what, you know, how good that is. But, you know, their focus is on, you know, the next level at all. I don't think any other uh, shoe companies do something um, exactly quite like what New Balance is doing, but I do think you'll start to see like little, like kind of similar things being set up for kids in the future. I mean, I think this just opens the door for other companies to get creative in terms of things that they can offer kids, you know, just for that one year. I think it does hurt a little bit from just a competition and conditioning and, you know, being, you know, in game shape you know, for getting ready for the rookie combine. But as we, we can go back to the way the game is being played now, even at the college level, how much really, you know, in terms of competition are they missing? Like when was the last great college basketball game that you can remember where, like, right. guys are going at each other, like, one-on-one? Hasn't, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen it in a while. In a while. Yeah. So I don't think from a competition standpoint – you're missing much. Like BC said, there's like Boston College out there. There's a lot of universities out there where I'm pretty sure there'll be things scheduled in where he can go arrive on campus, you know, get a good run in, break a sweat. You know, he'll be working out. You know, he definitely needs to put on some weight. But, you know, I just look at just five years from now, what does, you know, the landscape look like? Do we see all these other shoe companies? Do they start to implement things to, you know, give kids, you know, options after that? Or 
Now does the league like say, okay, we got to get you know ahead of this because we don't want guys making potentially five million dollars before they even sign their you know. One of the things we talked about off air, like, is that one hundred twenty-five thousand to offer? They're offering to play in a G League. Will it be enough? Yeah, I don't think so. The way like, because you if you start having other shoe companies come in. Especially and more Nike, options, especially yeah. Nike, Nike and they can pick who they want yeah. and get the shoe deal done before they actually get to the league and start forming brands that way. I mean, New Balance is basically, they have three months to form a brand around this kid. Yeah. In um, man, I, you know what? I don't, I think this might be a one-off. Um, I don't, I don't really foresee this happening, you know, too many times. You know, you mentioned the G League is $125,000 enough. I would argue that it is, you know what I'm saying? Because even, you know, even if you get, you know, let's say you go to a D1 school, right? you know, you're still going to make some kind of money. You know, those kids do get paid. It's not a lot of money, Um, but it's definitely not $125,000 to play basketball and not have to go to class. So um, I think, I think the G League is actually moving towards being, the main option for guys coming out of high school in terms of college, especially if they can get the dollar amount right, I think that's a beautiful thing. I would like to actually see that happen. You know, interesting point, man. I had an opportunity to actually talk to Antoine Walker. He brought up something that was very interesting. These guys go to the G League, they're making 125000 and you have other guys than the G League veterans not making near that, trying to get to the league. Mm-hmm. Like, will these kids actually be mentally prepared to deal with guys that are going to be coming at them, grown men, per se, rather than another 18-, 19-year-old that they know they're better than and they're just going out there playing, uh, to say, Duke and Zion Williamson, they're playing uh, NCA&T yeah. Yeah, one night. And they he can just coast. Him and RJ can catch, mm-hmm. just coast, put up 20, put up double-doubles, and it's nothing. This G League format – Every night, the bullseye is on you with a grown man coming for, coming for you because they look at you like, man, you're getting 125000 You haven't paid any dues. You're coming straight from high yeah. school. And just because you're a prospect, I mean, that's just something to look at. Like, man, I really never looked at it from that standpoint. But it might be something that – but if you're a top prospect, you're probably better. Yeah, than that guy anyway. You 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 have to set up a system to where a kid can not only develop, but a kid is going to be comfortable when you're playing against grown. I mean, just the team locker room element of that situation. You know, some a lot of a lot of these guys already know each other just right, through right. AAU or something. But when you're coming on there as the guy that's making one twenty five and all these other guys are making I think I can't even remember what the number is. I think but some make like twenty five twenty five thousand, yeah. yeah. And like I'm supposed to defer to this guy right. now. And, you know, I've had three, ten days in the league. I'm on I feel I'm on the brink. I'm supposed to defer to this guy now. Right. right. Yeah. So I mean it's that could be a tough element, you know, for an eighteen year old kid walking into a locker room full of you know, grown man, and this isn't the league at all. I mean, where you you're know, still on the bus. Stuff. Yeah, you're still, you're still on, the, on bu- the bus. You're in chartered planes. Right. You're showing up to, you know, Boise. You know, at two a.m. Right. In the morning. I mean, it's a different element. So you're gonna have to create. You're gonna basically create like a farm system now, with a G League. But you also have to. It has to be like this incubation method to where 
you're protecting this kid from so many other things that professional teams are able to do because they have the resources, but G League teams, you know, don't have anybody to watch a guy when he lands at a certain place. They don't have anybody to watch a guy, you know, at 2 a.m. to protect him. So there's a lot of things that they have to implement and, you know, G League just has to expand upon if this is going to be the route that they're going to take. You have to be able to protect, you know, an 18-year-old. Yeah. It's amazing. Man, I feel like like there's no better preparation for the league. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, even though it is a G League and, you know, if you pay a guy $125,000 and, you know, you asking the guy that's making thirty, who's had a couple call-ups, um, you know, to defer, and then that guy is going at the teammate's head, well, I mean, for that kid that's making $125,000 who's basically been tabbed to go to the league, I think there's no better preparation for him. Um, I do feel like, though, if you're going to do that, in terms of you know identifying you know elite prospects and then pay them 125, then I think the, I think I would I would imagine there's discussions right now about having to kind of raise the salary across the board, um, because of the simple fact that you might have guys you know there's guys who playing in the G League for a couple of reasons. Obviously, the main reason is they want to get a call up and they, you know, they want to be seen by these coaches and they want to kind of be in a professional team's farm system to have an opportunity to move up. So even if it is to get a 10 day or, you know, sign a two way contract. Um, but if you don't financially reward those guys, then there's no incentive for them to do that anymore, you know, because they know that they can go a thousand miles away from home and make a million dollars. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's not, you know, it's, it becomes about, all right, so, uh, you know, is it about the money or is it about the opportunity? And I think if you don't compensate them properly, then for the, a lot of these guys it's going to be about the money and then G League is going to kind of shoot itself in the foot. So, you know, if you're doing these elite contracts, then I, you know, I personally think you're going to have to raise salaries across the board to make it worth guys' time to even entertain the thought or the idea of playing in the G League. According to sources, Two Adidas executives and an aspiring agent were convicted of wire fraud and wire fraud conspiracy in the FBI investigation into the NCAA basketball uh, scandal that's going on with mentioning coaches and players. Uh, I want to get to the fact that players that were mentioned in the indictments originally are still on the courts playing, one like Zion Williamson. I don't know. How that's not a violation, I don't know how the NCAA is not looking at him and looking at Coach K and Duke, but also Jim Gatto, Merle Cole, and Christian Dawkins. Uh, they were convicted of those two charges, and they can get up to 20 years, but most say they were probably getting no more than two to three years on these charges. With that mixed in with this deal with Darius Baisley, the G League deal, everything that's going around, it doesn't seem like college basketball has stopped, missed a beat, a blip. Nothing was interrupted. High school didn't miss a beat. Peach yeah. Jam, any other tournaments, like nothing has changed. And why the FBI did this, who was trying to get something on their resume to try and make a move in their career, I don't know if that was the reason why this took place. But you had, as I said before, it's just strange that you have coaches that were mentioned. Mm-hmm. Players that are on teams, of course, you have Michigan State, Kansas, Kansas, Kentucky, Kentucky. and Duke. Mm -hmm. They all meet up. They have 
players that were mentioned in the original indictments. No investigation. So it's like, did the NCAA really care? Did the FBI really care in cleaning up college basketball or AAU basketball? No. No. And so this just goes back to what Rich Paul was talking about in that clip. It's a broken system. Flat out. It's a broken system from the top, starting at the NCAA, all the way down to lower levels. Yeah. And until there's a Um, new system. Oh, go ahead, Chris. Now, until there's a new system, I'm all for guys like Darius Baisley. I'm all for people like LeVar Ball. I'm all for anybody that can find any other option other than have to fake the funk and act like you really want to go to school when your dream is to play in the league. You have Anthony Simons right now sitting on the bench, but he's playing behind two guys, probably guarding Dame in practice, guarding CJ in practice, learning the game, and he'll be much better this summer than he would have been had he gone to a college for one year it didn't come out in my opinion man you know this situation hit close home for me because like i told y'all you know merrill code is my dude like i've been knowing him for a long time man and so you um, you hiding the money bc huh you hiding the money for him man i ain't got nothing to do with that (laughs) (laughs) but uh you know what man i you know I actually, honestly, I actually found out he got convicted last night. Uh, another one of my homies, you know, a good friend of mine, that's also a good friend of Merle's, uh, told me about it because I hadn't really been following the case. But when I found out he got convicted, um, you know, I was just reading it. And my takeaway from it was that the NCAA essentially kind of painted themselves as victims. That was the first thing that, like, struck me. It's like they painted themselves as being the victim when they've exploited kids for years. You know, like Ed O'Bannon basically had to take the NCAA to court for exploiting him and other players. So that was the first thing that I thought was weird. The second thing I thought was weird was because, you you know, you basically found Merle guilty and Christian guilty and uh, Jim Gatto guilty, you basically, the message to me that I got from that was like, it's okay to pay these kids if they go to the school. You know what I'm saying? Like, uh, like it was almost like, yeah, yeah, you know, paying them is fine if they ended up going to the school. But because they didn't end up going to the school and because the school was actually, you know, whether the coaches knew it or not, um, you know, the school was actually either – you know, paying off these guys or paying off their parents, you know, and giving them money and, you know, giving them basically what amounts to improper benefits and that kid decides to go to another school or, you know, maybe, you know, do something else, then that school is the victim. So it's like it's really sanctioning the pain, that that particular case to me. And then when you say these other guys, you know, guys like Zion Williamson and stuff like that, I still on the court playing basketball, this particular case basically said it's not illegal to pay players. Like, that's what I got from it. Like, paying players is totally fine. Um, I thought it was a witch hunt. I thought the whole thing was a sham. I thought, you know, these guys are facing 20 years. You know, I know Merle got like a five- or six-year-old son, and he probably won't get 20 years. Even if he gets two or three. That's still time Even if he does get two or three. Yeah. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? That's still time. Like, that's still time out of your life for something that, to me, 
is minor. Like it's not even a big deal. And everybody it's really was not complicit. A big deal. Everybody was complicit, in my opinion. Yeah. The whole like, system yeah, like, is like, complicit. Yeah, like you you know what I'm saying? You 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 find these three guys guilty. You're about to send them to federal prison. But Coach K is off the hook. Zion Williamson is still allowed to play. Um, you know, it's a couple other kids who names came up, like legit their names came up and the NCAA didn't move on. Names on wiretaps. Yeah. On, yeah, wire on federal wiretaps. Yes. And the NCAA, you know, and the NCAA doesn't move on any of this. So, you know, to me that this just shows how much the NCAA is a joke and why I want you know, going back to the options part, why well, want an alternative, you know, system to be created for these kids to not have to go to college because they don't really care. The only thing they care about is the bottom line. They don't care nothing about these kids. You know, they care about protecting their cash cow programs, their cash cow coaches, and that's it. Like, there's no way that Coach K should walk away from this unscathed. There's none. Like his like like his entire reputation should be completely ruined. Like Rick Patino, you know, even though Rick Patino got in trouble for a bunch of other dumb stuff he did, but just, you know, the pristine image that Duke has and you got a kid on your roster that took money that you potentially you probably could have paid this kid to even go there. And he's playing and the NCAA just turns turns around and looks the other way. Nah, man, that's a joke. Yeah, I mean, just to have, you know, these guys it seemed like basically pawns almost, you know, or just fall guys. I mean, you know, just to face 20 years, you know, in federal prison for something that's been going on that everybody's known about. Everybody's known about it. Like it decades. benefits the system. Yes. It benefits the system. Yeah. They make money by spending money. Of course. And then, you know, I, I don't go. It does seem like the NCAA is just kind of tried to wipe their hands away with this because the reports are coming out, these kids' names are in wiretaps, yet no type of action is going to happen. I think, you know, what will happen is something else will come up from this and, you know, we'll see a team having to vacate wins, you know, just in, down the line. Down the line. Yeah, but, you know, just the fact that nothing is happening now is very strange, you know, so I don't know what, what that is, but it just seems like the NCAA is kind of – trying to stay out of this for now, let it blow over. But then at the same time, you have guys like Merle, guys like Jim Gatto, who are facing federal time. Yeah. And we're not even thinking about what their futures look like, you know, once that time is served or, you know, I don't know. It's just, to me, I don't think anybody should be facing federal time for something like this because, you know, at the end of the day, who can we paint as victims for this? We can't paint these universities that, you know, are bringing in millions of dollars from these kids. We can't paint them as victims at all because they've do, been doing the same thing for decades. So, I don't know. I yeah, think, you know what? And the thing that's not going to change, the, the main thing that's not going to change, is this money going to keep changing mm-hmm. hands. Yeah. These kids going to still get paid to go to these schools. These still, You know, these kids are still going to get paid to, you know, play in certain AAU camps and wear certain sneakers. Like, all, like nothing is going to change. Like, I don't even see, you know, any wins being vacated because you can't tell me that, you know, you got guys' name coming up in federal wiretaps and, you know, these, you know, these names are basically in transcripts that you could, you know, any 
person who wants it could fill out a Freedom of Information Act and get it. You know what I'm saying? So you could find out who all of these people lie if you didn't, you know, if you wasn't following this case closely. This is public record. And because it's public record, the NCAA sits on its hands and does nothing. Nah, man, like, like if they do anything beyond this, then it's just pretty, you know, it's pretty much a PR. Um, but the NCAA is most definitely complicit in this particular culture of, you know, pay to play. You know what I'm saying? Like, the NCAA is complicit. Like, once I, you know, once I got into the inner workings of it, I'm one of those people who will adamantly say that there's nobody oblivious to what's going on. Not these coaches, um, not these schools, not these ADs, none of them. Everybody knows what's going on, but everybody has an investment in keeping this stuff going because what? They want to win. Yeah. They want their schools, you know what I'm saying? They want their schools tied to these big-name players. You know what I'm saying? They want that, you know, they want that alumni because that helps with recruiting, that helps with generate money, that helps with getting money for the program, that helps with facilities, it helps all of that. So it's not no situation where they want to play a square. Of course they don't want to play a square. They're the ones that that created the culture. And like you said, Chris, these dudes were fall guys simply because there was a lot of light shine on the NCAA. Somebody had to go down for it, and it was these three guys. And, and usually what happens after this, everybody turns around and they go, you know, and they go about their life. And while nobody is looking, you're going to have three more players, you know, because basically you open up room for three or four more people to slide in and do exactly what these people was doing. And NCAA and the rest of these coaches are going to keep looking the other way until something else happens again. Yeah, that's what – the reason I said the wins will be vacated and it's it'll be simply from a PR standpoint. But if all the kids, you know, you know, with the wiretaps and stuff, the biggest is Zion Williams. That's the biggest name in there. If you said yeah. him, you know, for the year, where's your interest in college basketball really? Like so, that's why I say like a year or two from now we'll see. We'll see. We'll yeah. see. Once he's making money in the exactly. league, exactly. Yeah, kind of I mean, like the Chris Weber, the Chris Weber. I yeah, mean, we go back to yeah. Memphis. You know, I mean, the NCAA is famous. You mentioned this. Memphis. Shout out BC. His boy got a top five recruit, oh, five yeah. star oh, this yeah. week. First so one of Penny many. is on his way. Yeah, one of many. Hopefully, he's not getting being a wiretap. Are <laughs> uh, you talking about the Mississippi kid that decommitted from Kentucky? Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, man. Yeah, <laughs> hey, hey, I'm glad. I, I like how you, you phrased it. that. You said it. You <laughs> said it. from Kentucky. like how you phrased that. Yeah, <laughs> man. It's, hey, he's, from, he's from home. So yeah, he's home. It's all local money. Yeah. You know, they could have did it like a bingo night, a raffle at the church. You know, it could have been all legal money. Yeah, good luck to Penny, Penny, but I think that's the first of many. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Man, we come back, A2S, we'll get into Hold Up, and we'll find out from BC whether or not a player is still a system player. Right here, the podcast, According to Sources, Sean Davis, Chris Kaysen, Brian Crawford. You're listening to According to Sources with BC, SD, and C4. Right here on A2S Network. Now, welcome back. Hold up this week. We go directly to Twitter that gives us all the content we need every week for Hold Up. The conversation on Twitter ringing off was who had the most fraudulent MVP in the NBA? I'm going to give you the top three vote getters from this discussion. 
the top three vote getters in no particular order or ranking were the 2004 season of Kevin Garnett, 2005 2006 Steve Nash, and 2011 Derrick Rose. Wow. What's the question? Who had the most fraudulent? No, I mean, were those seasons fraudulent? Any, I mean, I'm like, hold up. Like, yeah, it's like, how How can you look at any of those and say those were fraudulent MVP seasons? Yeah. Okay, with the Derrick Rose, people always want to throw LeBron, but LeBron's at the top every year. Yeah, I mean, we could go back to So Mike that you can call say, Westbrook fraudulent. You can call yeah. Harden fraudulent. I mean, LeBron James, that's like Mike should have gotten the MVP every, every year. year. Uh, Kevin Garnett. What is Steve Nash? Wait, the Steve Nash MVP, was that his first one or his second one? Well, I think they that? were talking about both of them because they were back-to-back. Oh, one of those is fraud. One of those could have been, I think, Shaq. Shaq should have gotten yeah, one of those? One yeah. Of those. Yeah. Steve Nash, yeah. most definitely. Yeah. Um, Steve Nash. KG. Yeah, KG. I mean, his MVP is legit, man, because that Minnesota Timberwolves team don't do nothing without him. And I think the year he won MVP, didn't they make it all the way to the conference finals? Yeah, they lost and, to the Lakers. Know, and, yep. Yeah, you know, I mean, and I know MVP is a regular season award, but that team was rolling just because of him. Um, and you know, I that Derrick Rose MVP is in basically in the same vein as Kevin Garnett. You know, the Bulls don't do what they do without Derrick Rose. So now nah, that fraud is one of those Steve Nash MVPs. Definitely that second one. He shouldn't have got that. That should have went to Shaq. Yeah, I agree with that. 24 and 14, yeah. 50% shooting for KG that year. Yeah. I would definitely say that, Steve. Nash, Number one seed year. in the Western Conference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's that. Was that Sam? Sam I am? Who else you had? Sam yeah, Sam Sam Trail. It's pretty well. Wasn't uh, Sam Mitchell on that team? I believe so. I believe so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Troy, no. Troy, Troy somebody. Troy Hudson. Yeah, yeah man, I mean, that team was basically, I mean, it was, KG carried that team. Troy he Hudson. literally put that team wow. on his back. I forgot about Troy Hudson. No, yeah, Troy Hudson was on that Hudson. team. Um, like, it wasn't, like, that team shouldn't have, I mean, his, his second best player, his, his only dog he had on that team was Sprewell. But, I mean, if you look at that roster, man, was Terrell Brandon on that team, too? No, I think Terrell was gone. He had a heart condition. He was gone? Okay. Yeah, I think well, I mean, he, I mean, just going back and look at that roster makeup, man. Like, he literally put that team, he put the entire city on his back. Oh, yeah. And that's the same thing I said about, you know, Derrick Rose. You know, he took that team and put all Chicago on his back. I'm like, yo, y'all going with me. Um, so you had those, Sam I mean, Cassell and Doobie Eby, Anthony Goldwire, yeah. Trent Hassel was on that squad. Fred Hoiberg was on that squad. Mm-hmm. Irvin Johnson, Quincy Lewis from Minnesota. Mark Madsen, Derek Martin, the lefty. Keith McLeod from St. John. Oliver Miller. Olawa Candy. Oh, wow. Zerbiak. Gary Trent. The tre- yeah. Yeah, that's a legit MVP, bro. <laughs> so legit. That's you a know, legit MVP. I've never seen anybody carry a group of bombs like that since probably Treat T-Mac in uh, Orlando. Same exact thing. Yeah. And those T-Mac Orlando years were. Well, they had those Detroit down 3-1. Yeah, <laughs> I think I, I just remember a few of his teammates. I remember Pat Garrity, pretty solid, but I remember they had an out-of-shape, end-of-the-rope Sean Kemp. 
on that team. Jesus, yeah, that was. And you look at Steve Nash, he had a loaded roster. Oh, yeah. I mean, they helped usher in what we're seeing. What we're seeing now. now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that team was just. Yeah, he was running with Sean Marion. Did, wasn't Q on that team? Q, Q um, Joe, Joe Johnson, Johnson Stoudemire. Joe Johnson. Yeah, they had a whip, man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, he was, like, he had, he had a bunch of pieces with him. And to give him MVP back-to-back, no, man. Like, and to this day, Shaq still got a problem with that. Yeah, like, he ain't got no problem. <laughs> Come on, when doesn't Shaq have a problem with? Shaq still yeah. has personal gripes with people now. He's still beefing with people now in the media. But, yeah. That, yeah, but, that, I mean, I mean, I'm on Shaq's side on this one. Yeah, especially for that second year. I think, what does Shaq average that year? I want to say it was like 20. I think that's the year him and Kobe averaged 28. I think Shaq. It was like 28 and 15 or something like that. No, what 28, 28 12, 12. And I think he was like at two blocks per game. But I think he did lead the league in um, field goal percentage that year, if I'm not mistaken. And they won a title that year, didn't they? What year was or that? did they go to the finals at least? Is that the year they lost to Detroit? No, that wasn't that year. Um, I can't remember what year that was. But if I, if I had the numbers in front of me, I think that is that 28-12 I think Kobe averaged 28 with him. Yeah, I'm looking at the stats now. You're right, 28, 12, 59% from the field. Yeah, it was. I don't, yeah, yeah. yeah it might have been a And that year. was the last year in L.A.? Yeah. Oh, four. Oh, yeah. Man, so it was, to me, that's still the, probably yeah. the most. The, the next year, the 04, most. 05 season, mm-hmm. was when he was in his first year in Miami. Yeah. Man, Kobe and Shaq having one MVP each is probably the biggest crime in basketball, like in in the NBA in that particular era. Like yeah. that's just wrong. Especially, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Especially not when you can give LeBron how many he got now? Four. LeBron does he have four? Yeah. Four MVPs. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And Shaq and Kobe got one. You know, and combined, what seven finals as teammates. Like that's that's ridiculous, man. And you know, and you know, and I get it. You know, they basically two great players playing on the same team, so mm-hmm. they gonna cancel each other out at some point. But man, Steve Nash got two, and these dudes got one. That's wrong. Yeah, man. And props to Dan Tony just for having a system that exploited everything that Nash was good at. And I often, I think I had this conversation with somebody during the Warriors game this week. And they were just talking about the level of scoring of that Phoenix team compared to, you know, the Golden State. Now, it was like if this was this era that that Phoenix team was in, I was like Steve Nash would be averaging like 20, 26 and 15 yeah. assists in this era because he would be forced to score yeah. more. Right. Like right. back then, he wasn't he shooting wasn't that much. Shooting, yeah. yeah. He's picking roll. And back then, they still played defense. They were still guarding. Yeah. You just hadn't seen a system like that to where teams are pushing it up, you know, after getting scored upon and, you know, shooting threes at that frequency. If that team was playing now, oh, imagine Amari in this era. In this I era. mean, healthy yeah, Amari. A healthy Amari Stoudemire. Yeah, the Warriors will have a problem on their hands. That's a good point. Yeah, that was, That's a good point. Because there's nothing as good as Draymond is. That Phoenix team, that four, five, Amari six. was a problem against this Amari is the only in this era they, they could shoot KG that I saw give Tim Duncan problems yeah you're right yeah 
That's a nice. What that's a that? nice one. I want man. This just well. This has been in the last forty eight hours, man. You realize the Cleveland Cavaliers relieved Tyron Lou of his duties, uh, right? Yeah. They made Larry Drew the interim head coach. And he's yeah. not the interim. Yeah, he base he's the voice. He's the voice. I'm not the interim. Right. Yeah. You know why? They're still in negotiations. Well, yeah, I, it's, it's, and it's, it's smart crazy. for Larry Drew. It's smart you, for him not to, because yeah, he's still getting a million yeah. as an assistant coach. But you coach. look at how his last head coaching job was handled, you know, in Milwaukee. Milwaukee, yeah. Yeah, basically just brought Jason Kidd in and said, you know, goodbye. And I think Larry Drew kind of sees, like, you know, what is going on here? You know, I'm not. Just going to do wanna, my job. Yeah, man. I don't want to be in the interim, interim role. I'm here. sure he doesn't want to. Yeah. Yeah. He should have let, he should have asked to be let go. But that million dollars is—he's one of the highest-paid assistants. So yeah. Speaking of Jason Kidd, I'd like to see him get a shot at that Bulls job. Jay Kidd? Yeah. Really? I don't. I don't know if that. Another hole up. It would be good. It but, would be interesting yeah. because going back to what we were talking about with these options for these kids, Rick Pitino, according to sources, also announced that he's trying to get back into the NBA. He just wants to. He just wants a job. Yeah, he want to coach. And I, he, yeah, I, I don't think he I don't can go back it. to. The NCAA yeah, I don't see it at all. That's kind of like bringing John Gruden back to the NFL. It's like there, there's going to be a team that I think in the next that'll bite. Two, yeah, I think so. Yeah, you think JK will really work? Think so? Yeah, for Patino, yeah, yeah. Hmm. You got to think hmm. about just the what is what is this? Well, he was about? the original in college. Re- relationships. In college, he was one of the creators of the pace system with that Kentucky team with Mash. Yeah, and playing small. Mm-hmm. He tried to bring it to the NBA, didn't work as well because it was more of a defensive game back then. Yeah. And he didn't have too much emphasis on defense. So maybe they feel like he'll be able to adjust to this era of basketball. I don't think with he stretching will. and shooting threes because his <laughs> Kentucky team shot the three. Well, yeah, but I think just being away from professional players and being around kids and not having that relationship. That yeah. yeah. And then coming to your coaching millionaires now, I don't think. I, I can see him coming back, and I do see a team hiring him just based off relationship alone, but I don't think he has a very long shelf life in the NBA just because I don't think he'll be able to adapt to being tuned out. I don't know. I used to think like that, but then I see, you know, I see the success, the success that Brad Stevens is having. Um, I see the success that um, Billy Donovan is having, even though he got, like, two great players. It makes it a little bit easier. Um, didn't Quinn Snyder come from college? Yeah. Maybe he did. Then I can't yeah. remember. Yeah, Quinn Snyder yeah. came from college. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it can work. I think. Um, I think Patino is probably a different case fact, though, yeah. because yeah. Patino already has like this cloud that's hanging over him, just as a person, not necessarily as a coach, but mm-hmm. just as a person. I don't. I don't know if an NBA general manager gives him a shot. I mean, I. Listen, I could be definitely wrong about that, but um, could he coach in today's NBA? Probably. I think he, you know, I think he has a lot of respect because the league is so much younger now. Yeah. Um, I think he would have a lot of respect from a lot of those guys that are, you know, in their first couple of years, and then obviously with the guys who's coming in and coming out of college who know who Rick Pitino is. I think he can have some sort of success um, in the NBA just because it is skewing younger. And you know, I don't, I don't necessarily think the money would be a big thing for him because Rick Pitino got a bag already. So you know what I'm saying? He he got more money than 
probably half the people on this team they'd be coaching. So I don't think it I don't think that would necessarily be a problem. I just don't know if he would get a shot. Crowd standing with the chance of Let's Go Raptors ringing in Scotiabank Arena. Leonard far side, right wing, on the bounce against Derrick Rose. Between the legs, isolated, drives to the baseline, fall away, jumper, good again! Kawhi Leonard with a clutch short corner 14-footer. BC. I was wrong. I didn't even need to lead (laughs) into it. No need. Nope, I was wrong. You were wrong? Let the people know what you were wrong about. Uh, Kawhi Leonard is a deal. He's (laughs) true. He's not not a system player at all. He can hoop. And... You know, I never would have known this if I didn't see him outside of San Antonio, man. Like now, now that you say that, I, are they a viable threat to Boston? Not saying they'll beat them, but will they make it a series? You know what? I'm more concerned about. I wrote a uh, I wrote a piece basically about who had the best chance to win MVP this season. And I said that it was probably Anthony Davis, but I'm thinking I probably should have went Kawhi because I feel like if he could get them back to where they were in the East top two, um, you know, coming off the season that he had last year, if he can, you know, if he could turn Toronto into a contender like that, I think he probably got a good shot in MVP. I don't think they got a good shot at Boston, especially now that Boston, you know, gels like I think they will. But I think, it, you know, he'll definitely give him a run. Yeah, I mean, I think what this season will do is get more eyes on Kawhi. Because, you know, as consistent as Spurs basketball has been over the last two decades, I don't think they weren't that sexy team that you were tuning in to watch yeah. at all. You know, they would kind of fall fall beneath the radar. And then you look up March and April, you're like, man, they're – 50 wins, 50 wins, they're right, right there at the top of the West. And then I think that's when people get exposed to, you know, more of the, you know, the general fan base gets exposed to San Antonio. So I think we had a limited window uh, in viewing Kawhi. But I think being in Toronto, having like more uh, games on national TV, that's going to help showcase, you know, some of the things that he's great at. So uh, to win MVP, I, you know, I think he would definitely have to, you know, if they can re- repeat as, uh, you know, top top two in the East, I think he makes a compelling case. But, you know, I always felt like the MVP this year was, you know, Anthony Davis. Um, and Giannis LeBron's is stalking whoever. I just look Giannis at is Yeah, Milwaukee's gotten off to a really, really good high start. start. And I actually like what uh, Coach Bud has done as far as opening the court up for him, you know, and like quiet is kept. I wish Jabari had of, you know, they would have, you know, kept him there because I think Coach Bud would have been great for Jabari's game mm-hmm. and helping um, just get him easier shots as opposed to what's happening here. We talked about that. I know you mentioned like you, you were worried about Bud taking things away from what made Giannis great. Right. In the first podcast, yeah. in the previous podcast we talked about, but you actually see now, like, there are certain oh, yeah. things. He's putting them in, in a lot of different spots. Them in. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and you just look at the game, looks so easy to Giannis just because defenses are horrible, first of all. Now there's not a lot of – there's the freedom of movement rule, so you really can't even 
touch guys anymore. So, but just what Coach Bud has done to open the floor up for him more. So now you can't kind of you know double double off of Chris Middleton now. Chris Middleton's going to get paid. Um, he's he's been balling. He's going to get paid. He's definitely going to get paid. He might be overpaid and hey. might decline hey. after yeah. he gets the money. <laughs> But he's definitely he's, getting paid. He's, he's been playing paid. very well at the beginning yeah. of the season. Yeah. Man, speaking of Giannis, man, I uh <laughs> this is funny. Last night, uh, I was playing two K, man. I was playing with a little youngin or whatever. Man, he beat the brakes off me with the bucks. He had Giannis <laughs> doing everything. I couldn't stop it. And it was like it's exactly how they play Giannis right now. Like, dude is all over the floor. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like there's nothing that you can do, like he doesn't even need to have a jumper, man, because he's just so effective with doing just, you know, he's going to get steals, he's going to get blocks, he's going to get rebounds, and he's going to get his points. And it's like the the more Milwaukee rolls and the higher his confidence gets, the more dangerous that team becomes. Now, the funny thing is that I think when they get to the playoffs, I think that run stops because, you know, like I always say, man, it's, it's one thing. The closest thing you get to a playoff scenario in the regular season is a back-to-back. You know what I'm saying? Because other than that, you know, you, you play one team and then you go on to the next one. And so I think, uh, you know, I think you can game plan to beat them in the postseason. But in the regular season, nah, man, they on a roll right now. And, and uh, like, barring injury, I don't, I don't see anybody, you know, slowing them down. Because like you said, Chris Middleton is about to get paid. Yeah. Um, he's playing very well. Like he's playing uh, out of his mind. And obviously, Giannis. You got Malcolm Brogdon coming in. I like the kid, uh, DiVincenzo. Um, they still got that bum whose name I don't mention. He's still on the roster. He's actually <laughs> playing pretty decent, man. Let so, man. <laughs> nah, never, man. Leave Thon alone, man. Leave Thon alone, bro. Oh, he's not talking. Uh, oh, you giving Thon a break right now? Oh, I like Tom Maker. Tom Maker ain't got no point. It's you a know form what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. 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 <laughs> you know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. <laughs> Whose name I don't mention. Mm. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Uh, it's, like you said, it's too early, reason. man. But yeah. Like you said, the playoffs, I still look at that roster and say, mm. Yeah, you look at depth. And yeah. Uh, to be honest, I look at the uh, Phillies roster right now, and I'm like, Depth. That's I don't. Thing. I don't. Man, first round win. And they got a. It's an anomaly. I've never seen a roster where you have the two primary ball handlers are not like threats from the perimeter. From the perimeter, whatsoever, which is you know crazy at all. Well, the thing about Philly is like they're not sneaking up on nobody no more. No. Like I felt like last. You know they they have been bad for so long. They started out like, slow nobody last re- year. And B came back, and then all of a sudden they just got on a roll. Yeah, yeah you know what I'm saying? Because, like, adjust, nobody yeah. actually took them seriously, you know, because they were so bad. And so they, you know, they, like you said, with, um, and B came back, they kind of rolled, and they, like, caught a lot of teams by surprise. But, you know, that's, that's, that's the beauty about professional sports and basketball is, like, that's only going to happen once. You know what I'm saying? You're only going to be able to sneak up on people once. You see it with individual players, man. Like, you'll see a guy get off the bench and, go crazy, and that's just because he wasn't on the scout report. But that next game, they're ready for you. You know what I'm saying? And I, and I think I think that's what Philly is going through now. Um, like you said, the, the fact that they two primary ball handlers can't shoot is really like that's going to be their Achilles heel because 
ultimately what you're going to end up doing. Like, Joel Embiid is your best shooter. He's your big man on the floor. You know what I'm saying? So, and it's just going to pull him further and further away from the basket. Um, I think they'll be fine. But I don't know if they uh, – like, I had them as, like, one of the top two teams in the East. And, like I said, it's still early, but they just not looking like that right now. All right, according to sources, once again, Chris Kaysen, as I said before, has a wonderful piece. Follow him at C4Dunk on Twitter and Instagram. Has a wonderful piece. What else? I know you said you were working on something coming up with the NBA. BC, you've been working on something as well, as you mentioned during the podcast. Yeah, yeah that's for print. Um, you know what I'm saying? Everything else I'm doing, man, is like I said, it's totally not basketball related. The people listening to this podcast most definitely will be interested. But, you know, when I get my basketball stuff on, I definitely promote it. Uh, but yeah, the print stuff is coming up in the next edition of next edition of uh, Hoop Mag. I wrote a uh, I wrote a dope little piece on. Um, well, I thought it was dope anyway. On uh, Dwayne Wade, obviously with this being his last season, you know, put a few words together on the you know on the hometown guy, and then obviously you know my MVP picks. I'm hoping the hometown guy wins that, but it's gonna be this is gonna be a lot tighter race than I thought. If, if the first couple weeks of the season is any indication. The MVP race is going to be a real good one this year. Three guys from the game in the game trying to give you the game. For BC, Brian Crawford, Chris Kaysen, go to iTunes right now and subscribe. The podcast, according to sources, SoundCloud, follow us. We'll have it posted on all of our social media. Once again, peace out. Like